And welcome back to Traditions. I'm Ron Olesko, and I am so excited to have a, an old friend join us today. Uh, he has just released a new album, which you've actually heard. Uh, I've played a cut or two in the previous weeks, but today we have a chance to sit down with him and talk about it. The name of the new album is The Coming of the Years, and it's sort of a, uh, an exploration of, uh, of heritage and self and the former, the one and only Joe Jenks. Joe, good to see you. How you doing today? Doing good. <laughs> you lost me with that, that line about the former. The former? Uh, yeah, it sounded like you said the former, the one and only. Oh, I'm sorry. Have I changed? Am I no longer myself? See, the problem is we're taping this in the morning, and I have not had my second cup of coffee, so I've got to get autocorrect for voice. We'll have to work on that. Well, I can guarantee you're alive and well and with us today, and I'm so happy to see you. Joe, I got to tell you, you know, you are probably one of the, maybe the busiest man in folk music. Um, you have been, even though we've had COVID and you've had your bouts with it as well, but you've been keeping quite busy this year. Uh, you've been doing some touring and you put this marvelous album together called The Coming of the Years. And I know you did it in kind of a, a whirlwind time in the midst of everything else that you're juggling. Um let, let's let's talk about this album. What 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 drove you to this? I mean, each of your albums have been sort of thematic in in a sense. Um, but what was it that brought you to this album at this time of your life? Um, that's a great question, Ron. And um, <clears throat> speaking of morning, I still have my morning voice on. Um, this album was, in some ways, you know, uh, among the shortest production length projects that I've worked on. Uh, I tracked the first note on the 10th of April, uh, and I was mixing by, you know, about the 3rd of May. Mm. Um, it was, it was under a month. Uh, I recorded my parts here at home in my studio. And then I hit the road to play some concert dates, uh, in the Northeast. And I went to Maine for two days and spent time with Hans Iraqi, an extraordinary um, flute and whistle player, both in the Irish traditions, and also uh, Hans is incredibly well known and respected in the traditional Japanese music circles. He's uh, eighth generation within a very esteemed lineage of shakuhachi players, mm -hmm. and I think um, you know the the combination of his knowledge and skill set in both traditions lean into each other and create a very interesting sound. I knew Hans first in the mid-90s in the folk scene in Seattle. We were both part of the traditional Irish community out there. And uh, there's all kinds of reasons why that's interesting for me, but, you know, to keep it brief for our listeners, uh, there was a huge Irish expat community in in, in, in Seattle, um, and it's Seattle is sister cities with Galway, Ireland, and so as a result of that, I really began to get to know a lot of folks who were from Ireland that helped me understand the distinction between what was quintessentially Irish and what a lot of Americans had come to assume is Irish. And so even though I tracked this album briefly, um, in some ways it's been decades in process, 
so I knew Hans is playing, and he played on my first national release, What Kind of Brother, uh, 22 years ago, and I had been wanting to get him on an album ever since. And he and I reconnected in 2018 at the Old Songs Festival, and I said, hey, I've got this project in my head, rather than you know having you be the last musician that comes in to play on a record and just put a little ornamentation I'd love to do a much more collaborative project with you where I record my parts, bring the entire project to you, and we figure out where there are places for you to play that are just really endemic to both your instrument and your skill set. And he said he would be totally up for it. Um, and so I went to Maine, set up my recording gear, recorded Hans, then I went to um, um, Vermont to catch Lissa Schneckenberger playing fiddle. And then upstate New York to catch uh, John Roberts playing concertina. Um, and that was really the heart of it. And Shannon Lambert Ryan from Runa and Cheryl Prashker also from Runa both agreed to uh, to help out a little bit. But the whole, the whole ethos of the album is that it captures a small ensemble that you might hear if you walked into a club or a, a listening pub in Ireland. That it really captures the heart of that music. And yet, in the center of it, my electric bazooki is featured on uh, like seven of these songs, which is also a bit of a throwback to Steel Eye Span and Fairport Convention and some of the, the very first ensembles that electrified the traditional music a little bit. So it, it really has been a long time in process, even though it came together very quickly. Um, but I'm a dual U.S. Irish citizen, and that was something I knew from the time I was little, but it was also a bit of an artifact of family history, and I had really wanted to find a way to bend my career into traveling more in Ireland. And in 2007, I met a fellow named Tom Piggott at a Folk Alliance conference, and he found out that I was an Irish citizen, that I had an Irish passport, and that I had never actually been to Ireland. And Tom was personally you know, offended by this. <laughs> he said to me, he said, Joseph, you'll set foot on Irish soil before the year is through. I swear it on my life, you know, and, um, and, and sure enough, you know, like six months later, he had booked several concerts for me and we organized some of my diehard fans to come with me. And I was doing a tour in Ireland. And it, ever since then, it's been a, a process of very deep exploration for me to sort of disambiguate what is authentically Irish and what are artifacts of Irish culture as it has translated. And how much of that do I have a right to claim, even though I am Irish, uh, both ethnically and politically? Um, you know, what does that mean for a kid who grew up in the States? You know, and so this album has been, in some ways, a lifelong process of asking and trying to answer those questions. And then it all came together very synergistically, very quickly in the music on this album. And I'm just, I couldn't be more delighted with the outcome and with the sound. It it, it really is a beautiful album. In fact, we're going to get to a, a cut right now to give our listeners a, a sample of it. Um, it. It really is a journey. And I think one of the songs that really exemplifies that is the title cut uh, the coming of the years uh is was this one of the first songs that you wrote for this album um it i well the first one was the the lead track on Aaron Shore which i wrote in 2007 on my first trip to Ireland uh and then the coming of the years i think i wrote 
in 2015. So it was, it was a little bit later into the process, mm -hmm. but in spite of the fact that my granddad and, you know, my mom's people on that side of the family all come from uh, a little town, a tie in County Kildare, uh, I have fallen in love with the mountains of County Kerry and they represent for me, um, just something wild and carefree and beautiful and it's just kind of one of my happy places and it's it's a place that i go to in my mind sometimes and um so this song emerged as is both a celebration and a little bit of a longing for that but uh, during the pandemic the song took on new meaning for me because of course we were all so separated from the people and the places that helped us anchor in community and I realized that even though I wrote this song for a very specific reason, that the song was transcending that. And as I was playing it in my live broadcasts throughout the, the height of the pandemic, it was one of the songs that people really responded to. And I realized much in the way that Doogie McLean's Caledonia speaks to me, even though I've also never been to Scotland, um, you know, there's something about this song that was speaking to my fans and to my audience in a very specific way, even though many of them had never been to Ireland. When I first came here to wander these mountains My heart was tattered and torn Ever the rover and all the world over No land ever felt like a home here in the crags and the bogs and the valleys I've found some measure of ease Where the song of the wind is as sweet to behold As the beautiful rose of Tralee And it's high up and over the mountains of Kerry That I love so dear I don't know when I will see you in the coming of the years Now I have been blessed To live a good life I can count my friends by the score And I have shared meals and moments of kindness God willing I'll know many but when the burden I've chosen to shoulder Is more than I can stand I find that my thoughts wander back up To carry that rugged and beautiful land And it's high up and over the mountains of Kerry That I love so dear I don't know when I will see you Right in most 
most of my wrongs Then take me back to the place that I love Let me gaze out over the sea Take me back to the mountains of Kerry And let my spirit run free And it's high up and over the mountains of Kerry That I love so dear I don't know when I will see you again In the coming of the years And it's high up and over the mountains of Kerry That I love so dear I don't know when I will see you again in the coming of the years I don't know when I will see you again In the coming of the years I don't know when but I'll see you again In the coming Coming of the Years, that's the title cut from the brand new album from Joe Jenks, and Joe is with us today, and, uh, you know, Joe, as you were saying before the song, I mean, that that that's something that speaks to everybody, I mean, it was meant something very personal to you, but someone like myself, I'm, I'm a Polish-American from New Jersey, I've never been to Ireland, but um, you mentioned that happy place, and I think we can all find that in that song. Um for you, though, being an Irish-American citizen, as you were saying, you do a couple of traditional Irish songs on the album, um, and you do tours quite frequently. I mean, you've got another one planned for 2023 to Ireland. Uh, how, how do you feel, or how do the audiences in Ireland feel uh, when they see somebody like yourself coming over? Um, you know, I, I guess there, there is a bit of a journey that you're on, but how do they uh, accept the music and and what you're trying to do with it? Well, I'll tell you what. If I wanna if I wanna shut down a pub in half a verse and have the entire room listening, uh, I will not sing an Irish song. I will get up on a stage, grab a microphone, and I'll start singing John Henry, a cappella. And there's something about that, both the a cappella tradition, which is really respected in Ireland, and um, uh, American songs of a particular era uh, are very much appreciated even still in Ireland. And I've had this somewhat magical experience uh, of discovering that the things that my Irish audiences are interested in are not the things that my American audiences are interested in in every case, you know, American audiences that know they're going to an Irish program want to hear Star of the County Down and the Black Velvet Band. And, you know, there's certain songs that are seen to be part of the canon. Uh, a lot of Irish audiences, even Irish audiences that are into traditional music, um, have sort of had their fill of these songs. You know, um, it's like the open mic that says no wagon wheel, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like they've, they've, just, they've had enough, you know. Um, and so when I play original songs like um, When the Moon Rises Over Skibbereen, which is about Ireland, or In the Shadow of Your Ghost, which is parked very squarely in Galway, and there's all these physical reference points to the city of Galway, um, 
but it's in my own voice and I'm yes. throwing the occasional bit of jazz chord structures in the music and doing things that are blending my Irishness, both culturally and musically with all of the other music literacy that resides within me. Those are the songs that I think my Irish audiences are much more interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to hear how their music has affected the world and come back home transformed and changed just as the diaspora have left and come back home transformed and changed in some way and bring that richness and that knowledge and that sort of expanded understanding of the world back to Ireland. So there, there's ever present and ongoing dialogue. Uh, but I've never had anybody in Ireland say, well, why are you playing that music? You know, show us your <laughs> Irish stamp. Are you Irish enough? You know, like this. Right. nobody gives me that over there. They just, I think they look at my, my facial structure and they look at my, you know, they look at me and hear me sing and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got an American accent, but he's Irish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, you know, I, I think it's the honesty that comes through and, uh, you know, you're speaking in your own voice as you were saying, you know, I, I've known a couple of people who I won't name. But they've gone over there and suddenly they start developing a little bit of a brogue <laughs> and it comes across as so phony. Oh, it totally does. It's like people who, you know, are from New Jersey or New York or Chicago that, you know, every time they sing a country song, they sound like they're from northern Alabama. That's you right. Know? And it drives me crazy. You know, it's like, look, you are compelling enough as an artist. You don't need to pretend to be something you're not. And I will say that after I've been in Ireland for two or three weeks, that the cadence of my speech changes a little bit. And I start to use some of the idioms that are more common or popular in Ireland. But th sometimes that's just, uh, I mean, I do that when I'm in Canada as well. I did that when I was, you know, when I've traveled internationally. If you're someplace long enough, some of the local idioms become part of the, the cadence of your speech. And also an awareness that people will understand you more clearly if you use phrases and concepts that are that are more familiar but you know it's also easy to misunderstand how an idiom is used and there's some pretty comical moments that can <laughs> flow downstream from that but yeah there's there is when i wrote um there was one song in particular that i wrote um in the shadow of your ghost and then played for um uh, a friend in ireland and he was weeping and his story was totally different than mine. His relationship with the song was different than mine. The, the things that it was yanking on in his heart were different than the reasons why I wrote the song. Um, but still there was this uh, sense of connection. And I think that's when I realized that if I brought my own voice to the process as a writer, not just my speaking voice or singing voice or my accent, but the authenticity of my own way of writing about a thing, um, that that's what my Irish audiences were interested in. And uh, much to my delight, my audiences on this side of the ocean are also very interested in that. Uh, as sure. you say, there's a, there's a kind of authenticity in that. And it took me a while to figure that out. When I first started traveling in Ireland and first started writing music over there, I think I was trying to lean into you know, the Irishness in a very particular way. But you know, the Ireland that I had stories of in my head was the one that my granddad left in 1914. Mm -hmm. You know, like it was a very different Ireland than the one that I experienced when I started traveling there that was so incredibly cosmopolitan and uh, incredibly connected to the global community. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try to celebrate both 
the history of Ireland, a song like The Minstrel Boy, which was, which, uh, you know, talks about the harp. The minstrel boy to the war has gone. In the ranks of death you'll find him. His father's sword he hath girded on, his wild harp slung behind him. Um, and, and that I, I ended up recording because of the war in Ukraine. I realized that um, for somebody who is often, you know, pushing against the structures of power and government and corporate, you know, process, uh, that I, I was having a strange sense of patriotism, not so much for the country I live in, but for Ireland, because I was thinking of another country that has endured occupation over centuries at different times. And, you know, it's not as simple as saying, well, look at what the English did to us. There's been a lot of conflicted, challenged political structures in Ireland over the last seven or 800 years. And I, I, I don't like reductionist political rhetoric over there any more than I like it over here. Um, but I realized that it was time for a new recording of that song um, because it spoke so deeply to what I was seeing, which was poets and writers and musicians and ballet dancers and teachers and rabbis and mothers making sure that their families were safe and turning around and going back voluntarily as combatants in a war in defense of their homeland. And so this notion that exists in the minstrel boy of the warrior poet of the warrior bard, um, I just felt like I was seeing this play out on television while I was recording this album. Um, but I'd say one of the most poignant songs on the album for me is When the Moon Rises Over Skibbereen, which is uh, <clears throat> a pretty deep dive that took me you know, it took me a lifetime plus an hour to write that song. You know, it took me a lifetime of assimilating, understanding about the great hunger. In the Irish language, it's called on Gortamar, the, the great hunger. It's not referred to as the famine, because a famine is a natural occurrence. A, a, a potato blight is a natural occurrence. But starvation is almost always something that occurs when there is a lack of political will to get food from people who have it to people who need it. And I remember my mother telling me this as a kid, and it, you know, what does a kid do with that idea? It's, it's a bit abstract. Um, but as I started traveling in Ireland and digging into Irish history and my own family history, going back centuries, uh, I really started to understand why it's called the Great Hunger. For every ship that came to Ireland carrying food for the ethnic Irish, there were six ships leaving Ireland with food that was bound for various parts of the Commonwealth. It was food that was being grown for export and that the ethnic Irish were forbidden to eat. And so when, when you look at the disparity there, uh, it's sort of unconscionable. You know, there were people keeping tallies of every bag of grain, every wheel of cheese, every, you know, crate of eggs that came in or out of the country, but no one was keeping a tally of, you know, what we now know was about 1.3 million people that died. And so after assimilating a lot of this information, uh, I was traveling one evening from a session I'd been leading in a pub in a neighboring town back to Skibbereen in County Cork. And this beautiful full strawberry moon was just rising over the hills to the east of Skibbereen. And you know how the moon is just like humongous when it's first popping up over the horizon. And my brain just went, when the moon rises over Skibbereen, the most melancholy moon I have seen, 
And do you think she remembers the sorrow she's seen when the moon rises over Skibbereen? You know, like it's just just stream of consciousness that just came to me. And I realized that I was finally ready to write about Angortamar. I was finally ready to write about the great hunger uh, and do it uh, again in an authentic way. By the banks of the island, the abbey's story graves, ten thousand nameless lay. Their faces forgotten, their stories remain to speak of unbearable pain. Their voices rise up as the wind breaks the silence. Trees all bear witness to shame. The light comes from nature, starvation from politics. Through history, it's always the same. When the moon rises over Skibbereen, the most melancholy moon I have seen. Do you think she remembers the sorrow she's seen when the moon rises over Skibbereen? Eighteen and forty-five potatoes first failed, but the people knew hard times before, so they pawned their belongings. For food to survive By late 1846 They were barely alive Too weak from the fever And hunger and thirst To properly bury their dead They were left by the roadside Dropped in the dirt With hardly a prayer even when the moon rises over Skibbereen, the most melancholy moon I have seen, do you think she remembers the sorrows she's seen when the moon rises over Skibbereen? And who takes the Failure's so grand There's plenty of guilt to go round By time it was known How bad it would get Thousands were laid in the ground In the ground Some say the workhouse And others the crown some say the landlord's to blame But by the next world or the new world Three million were gone And a country was forever changed Now the land and her people are thriving today 
There's a weight on the hills and the glens And it's left to the living to remember the family And swear to it never again When the moon rises over Skibbery The most melancholy moon I have seen Do you think she remembers The sorrow she seen When the moon rises over Skibbery Do you think she remembers The sorrow she when the moon rises over Skibbering When the moon rises over Skibbering And that was When the Moon Rises Over Skibbering song from the new album The Coming of the Years from Joe Jenks and Joe is with us today. Joe, these songs on this album are yeah, mainly, uh, well, it's a mix. I mean, you, you wrote songs like the one we just heard, but you also have a Cat Eggleston song called Letter Home, which uh, is based on Letter Home 1914, which is based on some letters from the Irish National Archives. You do songs like Caledonia, even though it's Scottish, it's still uh, part of that uh, that same region and, and, and um, history. Um, and a couple of traditional songs as well. You mentioned The Minstrel Boy, um, this album is really a, a journey. It's a journey, I guess, for you, uncovering your heritage. What What did you learn as you put this album together and you finally came up with these 13 songs? What What did you learn about yourself? It, yeah, thank you. It's a good question. Um, I Well, and good of you to note that finally came up with these 13 songs because indeed the list started out at 30. Sure. <laughs> and then I had to figure out, you know, what what of the music that I had written felt most germane in the moment. I wrote a post-it note uh, and stuck it above my computer um, in my office. And it said, what does the world need right now? And right next to it, I wrote on another post-it note, what do I have to give? And every time I was thinking about the album, I would just look at these two notes. What does the world need right now and what do I have to give? And um, it led me in some surprising directions. So The Minstrel Boy, uh, the last song in the album, um, which uh, you know we'll talk about in a little bit, um, uh, this is my song. You know, there, there were pieces that were very much influenced by things that were going on in the world in that moment. Um, a song like When the Moon Rises Over Skibbereen became more poignant to me in the wake of the first two years of the pandemic when there had been so much loss and so much denial about the amount of loss. So many people playing political games with the lives of other people. Uh, and that, you know, um, infuriated me. It made me want to draw connections between this notion of like, you know, a time of, of, of a blight or a natural famine is one thing, 
But when people are starving, it's a lack of political will. And when that many people are dying, it is also a lack of political will. And that wasn't just, you know, in the mid-19th century in Ireland. It was going on around us for two years in our own country. You know, mm-hmm. just this unwillingness to look at the truth of what was happening. And so I think I really was influenced by the zeitgeist. There's a certain sense of longing and a certain sense of, you know, hope, but but sadness. And, and I, I think this album was a great, um, a great expression for me of all of the things that I had felt during the pandemic, um, the joy, the wonder, you know, how many people showed up. Um, to keep the wheels of community turning and how many people now that I'm back on the road that aren't there anymore. You know, I go to play a concert in Teaneck, New Jersey, or I go to play a concert in White Plains or out in Boston or in Minneapolis and people that I've known for years that would have been sitting front row at that particular coffee house or that particular concert venue. um, They're not there. And I think, oh man, (laughs) you know, like, you know, and inevitably I ask and inevitably I find out that at some point in the last two and a half or three years that they passed. And so uh, not to drag this down, but the authenticity of this album, I think, has to do with a willingness to acknowledge the truth of the world that we live in. Um, not just the one that I'm writing about in Ireland. So this process of discovery, this process of, of evolution with the music um is driven by a lot of things ideologically. But again, I come back to the electric bazooki, and I think we're about to play the song City of Chicago, which is a great example of the electric bazooki and my voice, just just the two instruments, and that's it, nothing else, just just out there. Um, and Luca Bloom and I met uh, many years ago. Uh, he came and played a concert for a group that I was leading, and uh, and I got to play my song Lady of the Harbor for him. And he, in turn, said, well, here, let me play you a part of that story from the other side. And he played City of Chicago. And that really struck me because when my granddad uh, left Ireland in 1914, um, uh, which is also why that Cat Eggleston song was so important to me, uh, because had my granddad not left early in 1914, he very likely would have been conscripted into an Irish regiment of the British Army. And I think he was very clear about that. And he wasn't afraid to fight. He wasn't afraid to serve. He came to the United States, joined the Marines because he wasn't a citizen. And you have to be a citizen to be a Marine. They gave him an honorable discharge after six months once the paperwork caught up. And they shipped him off with the army to the Texas-Mexico border. Uh, they, They put him in the cavalry because the part of Ireland he's from is known for horses. Although he was like the 12th generation son of Taylor's. So, you know, his knowledge of horses was functional at best. And uh, he wrote a letter to one of his sisters who was a nun in Ireland. And he said, when I die, know that I shall go to heaven for I have already been to hell. You know, and I can only imagine what it would have been like for this, you know, enthusiastic young Irishman who came from a place that was so verdant so green, so lush all of the time to end up outside of El Paso where you can ride for hours and never see anything resembling a tree, you know, like it just, it just had to be trippy. And so I thought with some gratitude about, you know, the, the road not taken, like would I even exist if granddad hadn't left Ireland in 1914? But then after all of that, after the war, he ends up in Chicago. And so I hear Luca Bloom sing this song, City of Chicago, and I just, I start weeping 
um, not because it's a particularly sad song. It's, it's a bit melancholy, but because I, I start to connect the dots between granddad and his story and World War One and, you know, all these different narratives that come together for me in Luca Bloom's song. And uh, I called him and said, hey, I really, I really want to record this song. He said, go for it. I said, you know, I'd love to honor proper royalties and pay you what, what you're due. He giggled and said, whenever you can figure out how to make money again selling CDs, then you can start paying me. <laughs> he, he was a total mensch, but it's a beautiful song. And the it cannot be overstated that the electric bazooki that Baird Blaine made for me in 2018 is an integral part of this album. And the, the, one of the great creative joys for me within all the chaos of the pandemic is that being off the road for the better part of two years, I suddenly had time to make friends with a new instrument and a new musical language within that, uh, a whole set of tones and timbres. Um, and I, I don't know that I would have had that much time to practice and just explore sounds if I hadn't been stationary for a while. And so that became a significant part of the creative voice of this album is the, the various tones and timbres of that instrument. And uh, City of Chicago just showcases that beautifully. As the evening shadows fall, 
Chicago, sung by Joe Jenks, song written by Luca Bloom. It's on Joe's new album, The Coming of the Years, and we're, we're talking with Joe today about this album. Uh, you were talking before about the bazooki. Uh, typically not an Irish instrument, but I remember, uh, I think it was Planksy that first started uh, really using uh, the, the bazooki back in the, in the 70s, and it suddenly became uh, so perfectly fit for, for this kind of music. I mean, it's not traditional but yet it's, it's it's carrying this music on to to, to new levels uh, for you though using the bazooki and learning it uh, were, were you influenced by anybody in particular um you know I, I started playing mandolin when I was five years old and um, I had one summer with a mandolin and then my sister Julie had the audacity to take it with her when she went back off to college <laughs> Um, and I always wanted a mandolin. And as I got older, I realized that that's the fretboard on that is so small that you really need to have kept up with it from childhood forward to really, really be able to play it in the way that I wished I could play it. And I thought, well, gosh, if there were just some instrument that was like a mandolin, but had bigger, bigger frets and more space. And I started to explore the mandola and then I found the bazooki and I started to transfer things that, that I had done as a child onto this instrument. And it made just a lot of sense to me. Um, uh, the, the bazooki was first brought to Ireland. Uh, I, I'm going to guess by Portuguese sailors because they sort of connected the world back in their day. They were sort of the FedEx of their times. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, throughout the Mediterranean and the West coast of Europe, uh, they they brought trade goods and to the Americas and back and um, I'm guessing it would have been Portuguese sailors that first brought the bazooki from Greece and the octave mandolin from Ireland or from Italy to Ireland. But you're right, they didn't really take off until uh, around the 1950s, uh, late 1940s, early 1950s, in the trad circles, and then uh, again groups like. Planksty and Steel Eye Span and Fairport Convention and a bunch of bunch of different ensembles um, took up these instruments in a different way, and I I just like the sound, you know, it, it both reminiscent of of the mandolin of my childhood and a little bit of twelve string guitars and I've always loved the twelve string Rickenbacker instruments and and the electric bazooki is a little bit evocative of that even though it's it's a very different kind of instrument. But I had been a diehard acoustic guy, and until Baird Blaine made this instrument for me and handed it to me and said, hey, you should be, you should be expanding your horizons. You've been a diehard acoustic guy your whole life. Like, think outside the box. 
Um, you know, I had been afraid, but I already knew how to play acoustic bouzouki. Baird had made one of those for me in 2010, and I'd been playing it um, very well. So my left hand already knew how to make sense of the instrument. But there's a kind of sustain in the tone on a, a good electric instrument. And this one's a solid maple body. You know, like I'd play notes, and then I'd hear this odd dissonant sound. And I'd realized that there was one string still ringing that I hadn't silenced. And it, it's a note that I'd played like five minutes ago, you know, but it was still ringing through the chords. And I'm like, what's wow. up with that? You know, so it's just, you know, an acoustic instrument doesn't have that kind of sustain. And it just, it took me a little while to really cultivate um, a new language with the instrument and a dialogue with it. But it, it, it was beautiful. And um, yeah, so the, there are a lot of reference points or influences in that. Um, but the instrument itself became the invitation into exploration and music is for me always a path of exploration. Yeah. And it's a, a thread that uh, goes throughout this album, the, the sound of the bazooki and the messages of your songs that you've, you've chosen for it. Uh, and, and the artists, uh, you, you mentioned some of them at the very beginning of this. Uh, and I'm, I'm still amazed that you said this was uh, four months from the start of recording till you get it in the hands of DJs like myself. Yeah. And on top of that, doing everything uh, like touring and performing and oh, yeah, music. The, the, the music was done in in like a month. Uh, and then uh, mixing and mastering was about another two and a half weeks. And then it was off to the copy house and crossing fingers because of supply chain issues and slowdowns in manufacturing and all kinds of things. But uh, just just barely got it back in time in late July to ship out to the DJs and to fans who had graciously supported the the process of making this record. And, um, uh, you know, so there's just this beautiful synergistic blend for me on this album of the songs that I wrote and the songs that I chose from friends of mine, from colleagues who... Um, you know, uh, just their work really spoke to me and fit in with the narrative that was emerging. You know, mm -hmm. the songs that fit, the songs that didn't became very clear as it progressed. Uh, and then, of course, a few traditional pieces um, just just to really anchor this squarely in that uh, the song When a Man's in Love uh, comes out of the oral tradition, but was first written down in around 1820 by a musicologist um, uh, in the Belfast area who heard somebody singing this song and transcribed it and wrote it down. And, uh, you know, so that's, it was just, it was really important to me to anchor this album squarely as a Joe Jenks album, as a singer songwriter album, uh, in a modern context, but anchor it also squarely in Ireland and in the Celtic traditions. In addition to being Irish, I'm also Scottish. I'm also Welsh. Um, you know, there's a, I'm just a Celt. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, <laughs> Well, I think it speaks to everybody. I mean, even though it is obviously a Celtic-influenced album, I mean, somebody like myself, as I said, a Polish-American. I mean, I think it's a, it's a journey that all of us go on. You, know, you were talking before about your grandfather and learning about your heritage, and I think that's something a lot of people don't do these days. But when I hear an album like yours, it, it gives me not only great music to be entertained and to think about, but it gives me some inspiration to uh, maybe take a look into my own past. And I hope some of our listeners will, uh, will feel the same. Uh, marvelous job, Joe. I'm so happy that you were able to put this out. I mean, it's sort of a, in some ways, a product of the uh, pandemic. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it I, is. I, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and it was, and during the pandemic, obviously, you know, I asked most of my artists these days, you know, what they were doing. I, I, I was actually following you during this. I mean, you were doing a lot of online programs. Uh, now that things are slowly, ever so slowly going back, um, you're touring more. I, I noticed from your website, you've got some great shows coming up, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it's changed, hasn't it? I mean, do you feel differently going out on the road now? And do you feel differently about doing online concerts? Is, is that becoming part of your routine going forward? Uh, well, I'm comfortable with the online shows. I'm familiar with them. I did, I think, 180 online concerts uh, in the first two years of the pandemic, um, all of which were in partnership with community organizations, coffee houses. Like, I, th I think once in the whole pandemic did I take to the airwaves and uh, so to speak the internet the ethernet um, and do a show that wasn't sponsored um, in in partnership when I say sponsored I don't necessarily mean economically but I just felt like if I if I had a microphone that there was an obligation to lift community with me every time I had that microphone and so I would do thematic shows I would do shows in partnership with the Madison Folklore Society or the Garden Stage or uh, Walk About Clearwater or the Eighth Step or you know who whatever presenter it was that I worked with in the brick and mortar world before the pandemic uh, the Ark in Ann Arbor you know I'd call them up and say hey let's let's do a thing together online let's make it happen uh, and so I I became very comfortable with staring at a little green dot and pretending it was an audience, you know, mm -hmm. and I wasn't trying to interact with the audience real time. It was more like radio where I just would, okay, the light's on, here we go, we're doing our thing, keep it interesting, keep it tight, you know, move on. Uh, but there was something so human about it, you know, and, and, and I'm so grateful for Stephen Colbert completely making a fool of himself on multiple occasions in the first few weeks that he was doing these live broadcasts from his home um, because it it gave all of us permission to make mistakes it gave all of us permission to fall off the horse and go well the horse is moving we got to get back up you know like um and i know a lot of people a lot of my colleagues felt very uh grateful um to stephen colbert in particular for uh, his willingness to just get out there ahead of the curve and say, well, we don't know how this is going to go and it may fall apart entirely, but here it is. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and so we all started to lean into it and embrace what was possible. But for me, I didn't do a regular broadcast. I didn't do a regular, like every Thursday is my thing. You know, like I just thought, no, I'm going to take the microphone when I have something to say, when I feel like my audience needs something. Again, that post-it note, what does the world need right now? And the other post-it note, what do I have to give? And that became the, the center point of the question that I asked myself every time I took a microphone during the height of the pandemic. And it became a part of this album on such a deep level. So, yeah, it's, it's a little odd being back out there. I think uh, I'm less inclined to do broadcast-only shows unless there's a particular reason for it. If there's an opportunity to play for a live audience, that is definitely my preference. Um... I'm noticing that uh, live audiences are in some places smaller and a little bit more reserved because people are still concerned about the spread of COVID and, you know, now, God forbid, this monkeypox thing, the, the, you know, like it's, it's just, it, it just feels like there keep being reasons why people are cautious and I respect that. 
but I also, uh, I miss what the music scene was like two and a half years ago or three years ago. Right. And I trust that a new, a new norm will emerge and we'll all get into it and it will be fine. And I think folk music better than many genres survived the pandemic because we are, uh, uh, we're a genre that is rooted in community first and foremost. And I saw that community rise to the occasion. I saw people embrace technologies that were generations, you know, ahead of their comfort level. And they did it anyways. I saw from artists to fans, to presenters, to DJs, I saw everybody lean into common space in order to keep it going. And it is so beautiful to be back out on the road and reconnecting with people in person. And the surprising thing to me is that there are people who did not know my music before the pandemic. They found me because of my YouTube channel, my broadcasts, the work I was doing online with other presenters. And now they're coming out to live shows and they're saying, oh my God, this is so much better in person. I'm thinking, <laughs> of course it is. You've All been right. listening to me through a speaker the size of your thumb. Of course it's <laughs> better in person. You know? <laughs> well, I think people have a good opportunity to see you in person. I, I've been looking at your schedule on your website, joejenks.com. I know this coming week you're going to be at Tradmat Camp, uh, the traditional music and dance camp. And uh, Pinewoods Camp in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Let's see, you've got some shows coming up in September, including uh, Cafe Lena, which you're doing with Cray Van Kirk on the uh, 16th. I believe that's also going to be live stream too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, yeah, it is. And also uh, the next, uh, on Sunday, that same weekend, we're going to be at Club Passim, and I just found out that they are also going to live stream that show. Oh, oh nice. And, nice. Um, uh, yeah, Cray's a, a marvelous fellow that I met online during the pandemic uh, through one of the Folk Alliance conferences. And just, uh, you know, I felt a certain kinship with his work. And we got to know each other and decided that we would do a few co-bills once, once we were both out traveling again. So mm -hmm. oh, That's great. Um, there's already one on the books for 2023 at Godfrey Daniels for the two of us. So, you know, I don't think this will be... Um, you know, a regular thing for us, but I think it will happen a few times a year that he and I get together and do some shows. And likewise, my friend and colleague Maria Dunn from Edmonton uh, up in Alberta, Canada, just won a Juno for her most recent album. And she and I are doing a string of shows in Ontario in October. Uh, and my friend Chris Matthews and I are going to do a few shows together in October as well. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, the, it's it's really, that's what I have missed as well, is collaborating with colleagues and hanging out with friends, making music together. So it's it's fun being back out there. Oh, well, it's fun for you to be back out there. It's fun for us to have this album to play. Uh, I will definitely be uh, featuring more songs from this in the weeks to come. Joe, I, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. Um, again, the name of the album is The Coming of the Years. And uh, we're going to go out with uh, the final song, which is called This Is My Song. Would you uh, like to play DJ and introduce this one? Uh, absolutely. Um, short and sweet. This is a melody that was written in 1899 uh, by Gene Sibelius, the Finnish composer, uh, it went by many names, but his name for it was Finlandia, and it was written um, as a musical act of resistance to the Russian occupation of Finland at the time. And uh, in 1933, an elementary school teacher in Hawaii named Lloyd Stone picked up Sibelius's melody and wrote these words to give to his school children to sing. And it's a song of peace. 
It's a song of unification. It's a song of recognizing the commonality between Ireland and Poland, the commonality between Chicago and Johannesburg, the commonality uh, between Bangkok and Bangladesh and Bogota. You know, like it's, it's, it's a song that speaks to human beings finding what it is that we have in common and leaning into that uh, while acknowledging our uniqueness. And it just... It was a song that really got me through the pandemic. And then when the war broke out in Ukraine, it was a song that I was singing to myself almost every day as a mantra, um, you know, a song of peace for their land and for mine. And, um, and so Lissa Schneckenberger did a great job working with me to build as one string player, a string quartet to go with this piece. And it's a little bit of an outlier um, you know, and that it, it has no overt connection to the Celtic world. Although I'm going to go with the fact that a guy whose name is Lloyd Stone was probably Welsh and therefore also probably Celtic in some fashion, but that's a bit of a stretch. The reason <laughs> that the song is on the album is because there, there's such a history, um, within Ireland, within Scotland, Wales, um, England throughout Western Europe and Eastern Europe of of strife and conflict and um, and colonizers brought that that you know vibe to this continent as well with them and I just I feel like it's time for it to stop I feel like people have to stand up and say no at a time when we're trying to figure out what environmental responsibility looks like. Um, what human and civil rights look like in a global context. War is simply unacceptable. War is not okay under any circumstance. Defensive purposes are one thing, but, but this war is an absolute failure of the international community to stand in defense of peace writ large, not just peace in Ukraine, but peace all over the world. And so I I really wanted to close the album with a song that was very personal for me, but one that was an invitation to the rest of the world saying, well, now I've told my story about Ireland and my relationship to Ireland. Now I want you to think about your place in the world and how you can go forth. This was sort of a commission at the end of the album to the listener, like go forth and be peacemakers. Good words and a good message to end our little visit with today. Joe Jenks, the coming of the years great album thank you for making this thank you for being with us today and uh i hope to see you again real soon i do too ron and thank you for keeping folk music alive and well and on the air for now into your fourth decade uh as a dj as a fan of folk music as a producer of concerts you are as true an ally as any working musician ever had. And I'm, I'm very pleased to also call you one of my true friends. Oh, it's a feeling is so mutual. Thank you so much for those kind words. Thank you for the album. And uh, let's take a listen now. Joe Jenks, this is my song from the new album, The Coming of the Years. my song, O God of all the nations, a 
song of peace for lands afar and mine. This is my home, the country where my heart is. Here are my hopes, my dreams, my holy shrine. But other hearts in other lands are meeting with hopes and dreams as true and high as mine. My country skies are bluer than the ocean and sunlight beams on clover leaf and pine But other lands have sunlight too and clover And skies are everywhere as blue as mine song of peace for their land 